Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode of the Cato podcast, I asked Adam Sharkey and Brent Stratton to join me to sit down with the legendary Bob Scales. Bob Scales was a former King County Deputy Prosecutor and Special Assistant United States Attorney for the Western District of Washington. He worked for 14 years and three mayors as a public safety policy advisor for the city of Seattle. Bob represented the Seattle Police Department during the 2011 DOJ Pattern or Practice Investigation and served as the Compliance Coordinator under the Federal Consent Decree. He now serves as a CEO of Police Strategies, where he and his team help law enforcement agencies throughout the country form strategies that fight bad data and combat those who use it to fit their own narrative. Bob chairs his experience with federal and state DOJ consent decrees and the Racial and Identity Profiling Advisory Board, which we call RIPA. This podcast episode provides an important perspective on what you can do at any rank to recognize this battle space, avoid pitfalls, and collect better data to avoid a state or federal consent decree. I hope you enjoy the show. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industries carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. So, sir, thank you for being here. Thanks for taking the time. I know you are very busy. If you yep, could just you. start off, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up uh, being uh, an expert in, in these areas, because you, you you paid a you paid your dues in a lot of different battle spaces to get the experience that you have. Yeah, people often refer to me as like an expert on consent decrees. And I, I, I wouldn't use that term. I said I have a lot of opinions about consent decrees. I have experience and opinions, but I, I don't know if anybody's an expert on them. But um, so I'm an attorney. I was a, a prosecutor in King County, Washington in the 1990s. And then I worked for 14 years for the city of Seattle. Uh, I worked as a public safety policy advisor to several Seattle mayors. And then I moved to the city attorney's office, and I was there in 2011 when the Department of Justice came in and did a pattern of practice investigation of the Seattle Police Department. And so I represented the uh, the city in in that uh, investigation and worked closely with DOJ. Um, the DOJ issued their findings and found a pattern of practice of excessive or unnecessary force. Um, was involved in the negotiations over the consent decree. It was eventually entered into, and then the mayor appointed me to be the compliance coordinator in the Seattle Police Department to oversee the reforms. 
And I did that for a year and a half and decided that was enough and uh, left and formed uh, my company, Police Strategies. And our our goal is really to sort of take the lessons learned uh, from the consent decree, which is that nobody knows anything about use of force because there's no data. And so our our primary goal is to help law enforcement agencies uh, collect, analyze, and report on their use of force data. Brent, does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, it does sound real, uh, real familiar. And uh, Mr. Scales, I want to just thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come and speak with us. I know Marcus and I have listened to some of your other podcasts and we listened to one. I, I can't remember what exactly it was called, but you were speaking with some Chicago cops and uh, and they were calling you Bobby Stats, which I really thought was uh, <laughs> was really great. I got a chuckle out of that. But uh, for those that are listening, I do think that um, we've seen a lot of this within our own state, right? When with Assembly Bill 481, with Assembly Bill 742, and a whole host of other legislation and um, lawsuits, news interviews, guardian articles, and stipulated judgments and consent decrees from, um, you know, bottom all the way to the top of our state. And we're seeing it spread throughout the country. So I do think that um, a big portion of this is because we don't do a very good job of telling our story. Um, I think that you know, that uh, we can we can gather stats, we can be directed by um, the data. It's not mutually exclusive with fighting crime or, or taking taking bad guys to jail. But if we don't do a better job of, of gathering the data and telling our story, uh, others will. And it may or may not be done ethically and accurately or uh, or in context. So we certainly see that this is an area where we can um, where we can improve. So we read a lot of your your articles and the and um, and I think that there's a lot of value. So uh, for those that are listening, I said, definitely take a look at, at Bob and a lot of the, listen to everything that he's he's said and uh, read what you can on, on what he's written, because this is, this is a, to steal Marcus's phrase, kind of our, our battle space in, in law enforcement, I think for the foreseeable future. Yeah. To kind of piggyback on that, um, Adam's here from a major agency in Southern California. Brent is uh, in kind of Southern Central California. No one really wants to claim what region Brent's in. And then uh, it's just where the air is that you can see. We'll just say that. And uh, me being a Nor- NorCal guy uh, until recently. So there's some trends that uh, Bob really was at the forefront of. And we're seeing this throughout the country and particularly the West Coast. And uh, uh, Bob, would you like to to give us a brief history lesson? Would it start with uh, you folks up there and the 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 consent decree kind of deal or what it and then kind of followed through with other data related uh, arguments like RIPA. Sure. So so when the DOJ, I, I didn't know anything about consent decrees and never I don't know if I had even heard of them before the DOJ announced that they were going to investigate Seattle PD. Um, and so I was, I was, I was in the city attorney's office, and because I'd, I'd had so much experience with uh, Seattle PD and the mayor's office and so forth, uh, they, they assigned me to essentially represent the city and the department in the in this investigation. So I, I reached out to uh, Los Angeles because they had recently finished their consent decree and spent a lot of time, you know, talking uh, to the folks that worked on that consent decree, which is very different than the modern consent decrees. Um, And I tried to find people around the country uh, who'd had experience with consent decrees. It was really hard to find anybody who knew anything about it. Um, So we were pretty much going into this blind. Um, And 
our our feeling was was that uh, w- there's no possible way that DOJ could find a pattern or practice of unconstitutional policing in Seattle. Uh, because Seattle was put up by the federal government and DOJ as a model police agency. I mean, we had our police chief was, you know, before the DOJ came was Gil Kurlikowski, who went on to become Obama's drug czar and then the head of Customs and Border Patrol. We had a three tier civilian oversight structure. We embraced community policing principles. We we did, we were some of the earliest adopters of de-escalation training and crisis intervention teams. I mean, we were doing pretty much everything you know you could imagine in terms of you know progressive policing policies and training. Seattle's a super liberal city. You know, I mean, we thought we were great, and and so we had no, we were not worried at all about DOJ coming in and looking at our looking at our cases. So we were an open book. And, and, and we, you know, we said, sure, you know, DOJ, you want to investigate us, you know, tell us what you want. So I was shipping hundreds of thousands of records at at the time we did a lot of photocopying. There wasn't a lot of electronic stuff, but I just, we didn't care about it. Just whatever you want, we'll give it to you. Talk to anyone you want in the department, you know, we're an open book. And so this went on for uh, about, uh, eight or nine months. Um, and then, uh, we didn't hear anything, right. Um, DOJ was just, they would ask us questions and they would tell us what they wanted, but no feedback on anything. And then late one night in December, got a call from the U S attorney's office and they said, well, we want to meet with the, the mayor and the, and the, uh, police chief and the command staff, uh, at, at 7 PM tonight. And I was like, okay. So we all go over there. And then uh, the U.S. attorney says, well, tomorrow morning uh, uh, at 8 a.m., we're going to do a national press conference. And Tom Perez, the head of the Civil Rights Division, is flying in to be there. And we're going to announce that you have a pattern or practice of unconstitutional policing, and you're going to have to do a consent decree. And, and I mean, the room like erupted. I mean, it just went crazy. I mean, it's like it's it, it's we couldn't believe it. And uh, so. So, so they told us to leave and they would talk to us after the press conference. And then, you know, their press conference was like all their findings, press conferences, where they just go through a long litany of how terrible the police department is, how they're racist and biased, and they violate people's rights routinely, et cetera, et cetera. And they have to do this consent decree. So one thing they said in their, in their letter was that, uh, in their findings letter was that 20% of all of our uses of force were unconstitutional. And either excessive or unnecessary or both. And that was their key finding. And so we said, that's that's not possible. That's that's just we we review all of our uses of force, and less than two percent are found to be out of policy, but that's not even unconstitutional. And so show us the cases. Show us, show us the cases that you found to be un- they, they refused. They wouldn't show us a single case that they claim was unconstitutional. So then we say, well, show us your methodology. How did you come up with this number? No, we're not going to show you anything. You just have to trust us. So we ended up at first uh, saying, we don't believe it. And that got a lot of, you know, so the mayor and the police chief said, we don't believe the numbers. And that got a lot of press. uh, And DOJ obviously didn't like that. And then DOJ wanted us to immediately sign a consent decree. And that wasn't going to happen. So, you know, six months of negotiations and what. My recommendation was a strong no. Uh, like you know, 
they can't prove it. They have no evidence that we have a pattern of practice. Don't sign the consent decree. And if you don't, what, what most people don't understand is that these are not criminal investigations. These are civil. This is a civil matter. And so if, if you say no, if you don't sign the consent decree, then the DOJ can file a lawsuit. And But if they file a lawsuit, they have to prove their case by preponderance of the evidence that you have a pattern or practice of unconstitutional policing. If they win after a trial, the worst thing that can happen to a city is a consent decree. So why are all these cities you know, running to sign up for consent decrees as soon as the DOJ, when, when you know, there's absolutely no proof, no evidence that you have a problem, and, and DOJ has never been able to prove it in court anyway, and they've only had one trial. So, so we had six months of so, uh, unfortunate, and, and the mayor and the police chief obviously didn't want to sign the consent decree, but the city council and the city attorney, who were separately elected, did. And so it became a political decision because if the mayor didn't sign the consent decree, probably the city council president would have. And that would have created a whole other brouhaha. So we ended up by more or less default, the mayor signing the consent decree. Yeah, I've seen similar situations play out. And I, I think some of the logic um, that I've heard in, in other places that you're going to spend the millions of dollars uh, having the fight to be able to prove it. And if you uh, if you win, then you don't have the stipulated judgment or a consent decree. And if you lose, you've spent a couple million dollars and now you've you've uh, pushed off the inevitable. But I do agree that it doesn't seem like um, we've seen a, a whole lot of examples where where they're showing those things. So I think it's wise for agencies to start to look at what you can what what you have now and what you can do to start to prepare yourself um, to um, to defend against some of these these criticisms and some of these allegations. You know, and, and as an organization, Cato really pushes for after action reports and everything that we do when it comes to um, tactical environments. And I think that tactical officers are actually very well prepared for after action reports and looking at things critically uh, within their organizations and how they can they can improve. And this is just another area in which in which we recommend that you do that. You know, and Cato really strives to be an organization that can be a repository for uh, best practices and data and gathering these things throughout the state, because there really isn't a mechanism anywhere in the state of California to capture the data um, to be able to to do these type of things. So, Bob, do you have any recommendations for what people that are listening, that are you know leaders in their organization, what they can do to start to to gather this information and to be able to tell it um, to to tell their story a little more effectively, and really maybe even some advice for for Cato, you know, the California Association of Tactical Officers, and how we can position ourselves to. Uh, serve our profession and in our state in the face of some of these challenges. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the one of the problems that we have now, and DOJ is is one of the biggest you know uh, troublemakers, is that there's so much misinformation about policing that's being put out there, and and that that is you know some of it's intentional, some of it's unintentional, but it's designed to to paint you know, policing in the worst possible light. Um, so whether it's looking at racial disparities or, or uses of force. Um, and so the problem that I think a lot of law enforcement agencies have, and, and even, even I, like when I worked in the mayor's office in Seattle um, and, and the, the police chief obviously reported to the mayor, it was like pulling teeth to try to get any data 
I couldn't get any data out of the, our own police department. They just didn't want to give me anything. And there's a reluctance among law enforcement, I think, in general, to share any data with any non-law enforcement purpose right, or non-law enforcement person. And what I kept getting told is that, well, you, you wouldn't understand the data, right? It, it's uh, you need to be law enforcement in order to understand, you know, what what data we have. So we'll we'll prepare the report and we'll give you the report. And I said, no, I want the raw data. Just give me the raw data. So I think law enforcement shoots itself in the foot a lot by by trying to to hold on to information. And in this day and age, particularly with obviously the internet and so forth and public records laws, it's so easy for people to get data. There's open data portals and all sorts of stuff from uh, on law enforcement. And if you have a data set, it's so easy to misuse it and misinterpret it. And that's what happens, for example, with these crowdsourced data sites like Mapping Police Violence and Fatal Encounters in the Washington Post. I mean, they have become the authoritative source on officer-involved shooting data because they're the only source of of national data on officer-involved shootings. And they just get that from, from media reports and sometimes public records requests. But they spin that data to make it look like there's a massive problem with officers shooting unarmed, mostly black individuals for no apparent reason, oftentimes after a, a routine traffic stop. And, and these narratives are put out there based on on the data that they're collecting from these uh, various sources. And we know that the police departments sit on mountains of very reliable data that's just sitting in these you know silos, whether it's your CAT RMS system or some specialized database, and and that could be used to both inform and educate the public and defend law enforcement agencies from you know unfair and unfounded accusations of of misconduct. And yet, so rarely do agencies take the time and effort to access and analyze and distribute that information to the public. And sometimes what I, one of the things, one of the trends I'm seeing is a lot of agencies now are simply dumping, you know, raw data on their open data portals. And the only people who are going to do that or the, or access that are activists and people like me who are geeks and just want to look at the data and see what we can find, but they're going to, they're going to, they're not going to report it fairly or analyze it fairly and so forth. So you, you, it's not just making the raw data available to the public. You have to be able to interpret and explain it to people and present it in a format that, that, that is easily digestible. I think I agree a hundred percent with where you are. It's just, that is not something that cops are normally uh, are, are known for being able to do, being, uh, being academic and being at data and capturing it. I know, uh, uh, you know, it, it's going to take some time to be able to to build that competence and that confidence with it. So I certainly agree that um, that's something that, that we need to get better at. And like I said, not just just dumping the data, but being able to to tell it and and tell our story. And, and I agree that data requires context. And I do think more agencies are getting to the point where they're comfortable uh, collecting it. But I, I haven't seen a lot that are doing well at being able to to put it in context, to be able to explain it and to be able to put it in a way that that makes sense. Because again, if we don't do that, somebody else, somebody else is, is going to. Um, you know, what, what is, what, one thing, just, just to piggyback on that comment, 
one of the things that I always encourage law enforcement agencies to do is wherever possible, create partnerships with local colleges and universities, particularly if they have a criminal justice department. Um, because you do need, it, it's unrealistic to expect, you know, police officers to have academic degrees and statistics and be able to present graphs and charts and stuff and, and, and analyze all the data that you have. But there are a lot of uh, criminal justice programs out there um, and a lot of grad students that would just die at the chance to to have access to to data like this and for both their own research and to help help departments uh, understand it as well. The caveat to that is that you also have you know people in academia who also have political agendas. And so you have to you have to be careful about who you select and you want to select somebody like if you go to uh, you know, right now, public health uh, is writing a lot of articles about policing data, saying police violence is a public health problem and we have to stop it. Um, sociology departments tend to be more sort of uh, biased in terms of how they view the data. But in general, criminal justice departments, because that's their focus, they tend to be more neutral and academic focus and less biased in the reporting of the data. Um, and, and so being able to create those kind of partnerships will really help you. And you can do that, you know, for free. Uh, I mean, you don't have to hire a, a consultant or anything else. And, 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 and so I try to encourage agencies to do that whenever possible. And in particular, if it's a local or regional, uh, university that, that helps as well. So I, I think you bring up so many good points here. I'd like to just kind of touch on a couple of things. So what kind of data do you think is used the most, both in DOJ oversight or in, I guess, activist purposes or causes? What do they look at most? Are they looking at use of force? Are they looking at disparities? Looking at stop data? What are the things that we should be most familiar with? And you know, maybe you want to touch on the idea of benchmarking and uh, how that kind of plays into that. Just the real fundamentals for someone who has no idea what we're talking about how do they get started and at least getting familiar with some of these things? Yeah. So the, I, I would say the, the, the two most common sort of data sets that I see used by the media and activist groups and DOJ are, are stops and uses of force. And so stops, uh, whether it's pedestrian stops or traffic stops are, are, you know, generally seen as, you know, high discretion by officers, particularly traffic stops. And, um, and when you um, use, which, which they all do, when you use population as a benchmark, you can always get always uh, significant disparities, particularly for uh, uh, black and uh, sometimes Hispanic, sometimes native Americans, but always for black individuals. Um, but you also get consistently underrepresentation for Asian and Pacific Islander and, and sometimes white individuals. So looking at stop data compared to the population will always produce the disparities that the activists and DOJ are looking for. So it's a, it's an easy and, and the typical headline is, is that uh, black drivers are five times more likely than white drivers to be stopped in the city of whatever. Um, and you see those headlines all the time. Um, the other uh, big data point are, are uses of force. And, and typically, because we don't have data on, on really comprehensive data on 
less lethal uses of force, the, the conversation tends to focus on these crowdsourced databases that have officer-involved shootings that involve a death. And so that that's about 1,100 incidents a year nationally. Um, and so you're having you know, not only uh, a public discussion and a lot of media attention, but you have uh, state and local legislation that is based on the data uh, from these advocacy groups. And, and obviously deadly force is less than 1% of all uses of force. And the, the deadly force they're, they're looking at is not unjustified or unlawful uses of force. They're looking at the whole thing. So if you look at unlawful and unjustified uses of deadly force, you're talking about 20, 25 incidents a year out of those 1,100. And in those cases, the officers are you know, either disciplined or fired or prosecuted. So we're dealing with an extremely small number of incidents and extreme you know, many agencies, particularly smaller agencies, will go many years without any officer-involved shooting. And then all it takes is one officer-involved shooting to bring them into the discussion and all the focus. And we've got to pass laws and do all sorts of things to deal with this, this issue. So the problem is both the lack of data and then who's interpreting that data and how they're interpreting it that's causing all the problems. So it sounds like what you're talking about in, in terms of benchmarking, right? What we're measuring this against, a lot of the times, it's census data. The stops may do not match up with the census data, but it may match up with other indicators, right? There's a difference between, you know, crime does not affect communities the same. Homelessness doesn't affect communities the same. Mental illness may not affect communities the same. There's other social, economic um, cultural, geographic factors that may play into why there's disparities. And, you know, some of the literature, actually most of the literature says that disparity does not equal discrimination. But a lot of the times you see groups trying to draw that link saying, well, because there's a disparity, a difference in the numbers benchmarked against census data, then that clearly is an indicator of discrimination. But every report I've read, um, there's always some sort of caveat in that report that says disparity doesn't mean discrimination, but then you've got 80, 100, 200 pages that suggests otherwise. That kind of leads the reader down a different road. Well, and and the one of the biggest problems, I mean, sort of getting into consent decrees is that this is what DOJ says explicitly, is that disparities in policing data with the population is discrimination. That is evidence of discrimination. It is proof of discrimination. I, I looked at the uh, Minneapolis uh, PD findings letter from DOJ, which is very similar to the Louisville, which is similar to most other DOJ findings letters. And one of their findings is that Minneapolis PD unlawfully discriminates against Black and Native American people when enforcing the law. All right. So this is this is from this is a, a graphic from the uh, DOJ findings letter. Uh, so what they do is they look at per capita rates of stops uh, of white people compared to stops of black people and Native American people adjusted for population shares. So there are a whole host of things wrong with this graphic, but. What this, what, what this obviously suggests is that for 
one every one white person stopped, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven black people stopped and eight or so Native American people stopped and and same thing for traffic stops, um, which is obviously not what what they're saying here is the per capita rate. What they're what they're trying to say is that based on the population, black people are two, four, six, seven times more likely to be stopped than white people. Um, but based on these population benchmarks, DOJ is saying that this is evidence of bias policing, racial profile, discrimination by Minneapolis police officers. And they use city census population as the benchmark. So let's just look at traffic stops, for example. So a benchmark is what we would, you know, we're, we're saying if there was not discrimination, right? If there was no discrimination, then um, if we have a good benchmark, then our stop should match our benchmark, right? That's, that's, the, that's the goal. Um, so is, is population a good benchmark? Well, number one, if you use city population as a benchmark, it assumes that only Minneapolis residents are stopped by Minneapolis police. Well, obviously, there are people that come into Minneapolis from outside of Minneapolis that are not part of the census population, but are stopped by the police. You'll have tourists and commuters and whatnot. So that's that that throws it out right there. But there's more problems. Um, it also assumes for traffic stops that everyone in the city has a driver's license. Even even children under 10 have driver's license and because they're part of the population. Right. So you're using population as a benchmark to, to measure this disparity. And the children under 10 are in, in your population, and yet there's no way they can possibly have a driver's license and drive a car. Um, you also have to assume that everyone in the city has access to a car, right? Because your population is your benchmark. And you have to assume that everyone drives the same amount, regardless of their age, race, gender, income, whatever, it, it matches the the driving population matches your your resident population, and it also assumes that everyone violates the law at the same rate. So so you know because everyone in the city is equally likely to be stopped in a traffic stop by Minneapolis police, and this disparity therefore is only due to uh, bias by the police. So you have to make all these assumptions. So if all these assumptions were true and police randomly stop people, uh, then we would expect the numbers to match up. But obviously, none of these assumptions are true. So it's just a ludicrous way, but it produces the results that DOJ wants because they want to find a pattern or practice of discrimination. And so they use this data. They do the similar thing with um, use of force. So they compare, I mean, this is just so crazy to me. They compare use of force to the population. So, so again, you have to make so many assumptions that basically everybody in, in the city is equally likely to be stopped, arrested, and resist arrest, and, and that all these disparities, and they found a lot of disparities, uh, because the the reason they found disparities is because the population of of Minneapolis is very has very low black and even lower Native American population. And here's here's the actual. So Minneapolis PD actually produced 
publishes their use of force data on their website. And in 2022, there were 250 white individuals that had force used against them, 620 black individuals, 57 Native Americans, four Asian, and one Pacific Islander. So these are the actual numbers. Now, if you compare the percentages of use of force with the percentages, racial percentages of arrestees, there is zero disparity. So basically, your benchmark is not the census population. Who's at risk of having force used against them? People who are arrested. You're not going to have police don't walk down the street and randomly use force on people. But if they're arresting somebody and that person is resisting arrest or fleeing, they're going to have force used against them. So your benchmark are arrestees. And when you use arrestees as your benchmark, disparities go away. So choosing the right benchmark will determine what outcome you have. But of course, you know, DOJ wants to see these. You can't produce this kind of chart if you use arrests only for population. So it, it, it's pretty, I mean, I don't want to say it's criminal, but it is, it is pure fabrication. I mean, they're making this stuff up out of thin air. And there's zero evidence of any bias based on these numbers. You got to walk me through that one again, Bob. So as you're you're saying, you're not going to use the population as a benchmark, and I totally understand why. But you're saying that when you take these number of arrestees and you match that up to what again, then then the disparity disappears. Run me through that one more time. Sure, sure. So uh, approximate percentages here. So let's say that there were you know a thousand people who had force used against them. Right. So um, 25% were white. If we look at arrest, and 62% were uh, black. Um, Now, if we look at percentages of arrests, 25% are white, 62% are black. Gotcha. So when you're arrested, you're no more or less likely to have force used against you if you're black or white. Gotcha. That's what not about, a factor. I, I that I hear what you're saying now. Are you seeing places that are using additional benchmarks, such as maybe the the race of the reported crime or anything like that, as an additional benchmark that are being used, or what are the other what are other benchmark areas that you're seeing? Yeah, so we do. I mean, unfortunately, there are very few, but there are some academic researchers that 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 refuse to use population as a benchmark um and the um uh the national policing institute um uh, recently did a report on uh, the pennsylvania state police and racial disparities in traffic stops and um university of texas at san antonio has done reports on on use of force um uh, disparities in in Tulsa and Fairfax County, Virginia, um, and they don't use population as a benchmark, and they explain all the reasons why. And so they use these alternative benchmarks, which are much better. So for depending on what you're measuring, you're going to have a different benchmark. So for example, for uses of force, the population at risk of having force used against them are arrestees. 
right? You're not going to have force used against you unless you're trying, unless an officer is trying to take you into custody. So then what is the appropriate benchmark for arrestees? Well, you're not going to be arrested unless you're suspected of committing a crime. So what's a good benchmark for crime suspects? Well, reported crime suspects from the community. So we see a similar pattern where uh, if 25% of your arrests were white suspects, then we would expect to see 25% of all reported crime suspects be white. And we do. We see that we, when, you, when you pick the proper benchmark, the racial disparities go away entirely or drop dramatically. And this makes sense because the police are not randomly going out there and stopping and arresting and using force on people. And, and using population in a, as a benchmark assumes that police just randomly do their thing. Police are responding to calls for service and complaints from the community. They're looking for people that the community is saying committed crimes. And so we would expect the, the, the uh, racial makeup of your arrestees to mirror the racial makeup of reported crime suspects. And that's what we see in every jurisdiction we've looked at. I, I think as you're saying that it's it's jogging some additional thoughts, then it would also be important for an agency to measure how much, what percentage of their use of force is self-initiated versus dispatch calls for service. And I would imagine that the extreme majority of the uses of force are going to be in response to dispatch dispatched calls for service. So then if you're then tracking what the reported race is there, that's also going to match up to your um, use of force numbers, which is going to match up to your arrestee data, which is going to show greater consistency all the way uh, across the board. And again, is going to be more accurate than the population benchmarking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to look at other factors as well. And one of those factors is whether the officer is responding to a dispatch call for service or they're making an officer initiated stop. You also have to look at, well, what is the what is the crime involved? I mean, there's a big difference between uh, 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 making a felony arrest for an armed robbery and making a stop for a taillight out. And the other thing that we've found in the data is that where officers have the least amount of discretion is where you see the largest racial disparities. And where the officers have the most amount of discretion is where you see the lowest racial disparities. Now, if those racial disparities were caused by officer bias, you would expect the reverse to be true. And so when we look at arrests for violent crimes, very large racial disparities for black suspects compared to the population. So, so black suspects are, I mean, if you look at homicides, for example, more than 56% of homicides in the United States are black suspects, even though they only make up 14 to 15% of the population. So there's a huge disparity there with the population. But if you look at uh, stops for minor traffic infractions, there are still racial disparities, but they're extremely small compared to the racial disparities for violent felonies. So, so the data doesn't support 
the notion that these racial disparities are driven by officer bias. It's the opposite. It's it's there's something there's other things going on in our society that are driving these racial disparities. And it's not the police just randomly stopping black people for no good reason and trying to arrest them for a crime. Yeah. And to kind of circle back, great examples to kind of dig deep on why these things are really important. Two, two things we we talked about briefly, and that is uh, you mentioned that we didn't have the data or the data we had, we didn't want to share. And in California, we're, we're forced now, you know, to share that data. And uh, because of that, we have people with their own agendas collecting that data and sharing it. That That's throughout our profession, no matter where you go, is we're, we're horrible at embracing that and then partnering with, again, a, a, a theme for Cato here, you know, we, we can't have academics telling us what to do if they're not involved with the practitioner part, but we can't have practitioners not doing the academic work either. And so we have to partner together to have good data that we can that we can back up what we're doing. And, and so we're usually swing one way or the other. Either it's too heavy academics and they don't understand what police do or they have an agenda or... We say, hey, we're going to ignore solid research and peer-reviewed stuff, and we're just going to tell you this is how we do it. And and we can't do that either, right? We have, we, we really need to combine those two. So I, I like how you said that. And then really what you were talking about is how we, you know, Adam brought benchmarking and how that looks and uses of force and stops. And and that's really, I guess, and, I, and if, correct me if I'm – this is one of the most successful ways – you can defend accusations is by the, explaining that. Yeah. And, and there's another really simple thing that agencies can do that, that uh, really wouldn't cost anything anymore. And it's it, especially like with RIPA data, you need to ask the right question. If you don't ask the right question, you're not going to have the data to give a good answer. So, for example, on the RIPA data, uh, RIPA, you know, you have to report the, you know, age, race, and gender, and everything of every person you stop. Okay, and and the RIPA board will say, look at these huge racial disparities in stops compared to the population. It shows that officers are biased. So, one question that's not on RIPA, some agencies are asking it, but not very many. One question that you could ask, just add it to the RIPA. Right. I mean, it's not it's not required by RIPA, but you could add it as a police department. Just one more question for the officer. The question is, could you see the race of the driver before you stop them? Because if you can't see the race of the driver before you stop them, there's no way that you can be accused of racial bias in that stop in the decision to make the stop. Because the RIPA board assumes in their reports that you can see the race of the person 100% of the time. And so these disparities are due to racial bias. So there are some cities that have added that question. And uh, Pleasanton, California, is one of the cities that added that question. Can you guess, like, what percentage of the time do officers say they can see the race of the driver before they stop them? Any guesses? Maybe 25% of the time. Less, less than 10. 10%. So 90% of the time when an officer makes a traffic stop, they do not know the race of the driver that they're stopping. 
Wow. So that completely blows the RIPA conclusions out of the water. And it makes sense when you look at the, because um, you can break it down by the type of offense. And so the offenses, the types of offenses where race is most often known before the stop are cell phone violations. Because if you can see the person on the cell phone, you can probably see some part of their face. And so that was like maybe 50% of the time they could see the race of the driver. But if somebody's, you know, if you're behind somebody and they're speeding away, it's very unlikely that you're going to know the race of the driver before you make the decision. So that that's such a key question. The other thing that I wish departments would do that no department I know has ever done this. Uh, one simple question for officers, which is in, in this arrest that you made that you where you didn't use force. Did you were you, would you have been authorized to use force, but you didn't? We know how many times officers use force. We don't know how many times officers successfully de-escalated. So we have no there's no good evaluation of the impact of de-escalation training or crisis intervention teams because we only see the bad outcomes. And so if officers were to record, hey, I could have used force. In this incident, I was legally authorized to use force against this suspect when I was arresting them, but I did X, Y, and Z and avoided having to use force. That's that's a such an important statistic. It's called sort of counterfactual data. You know, how many times do things could have things happen, but things didn't happen uh, because of something the person did? If we had that data, it would just be amazing. And, and researchers would go crazy over, over analyzing that kind of data. But it doesn't exist anywhere that I know of. Uh, but we need to know how many times officers successfully do something um, you know, and avoid having to use force. As you're talking through that, and for our listeners who are generally going to be tacticians assigned to tactical teams, I feel like this is an easy win for tactical teams, right? Because when tactical teams are there, they have a variety of different – they're already there because, because patrol has said, hey, this is a complex situation. We're bringing in a tactical team. You've got crisis negotiators. You've got canine. You might have EOD teams. You're doing a variety of different uh, things that are – really geared towards de-escalation, towards saving lives. It's what tactical teams do. You were there to save lives, oftentimes these suspects included. And, and so I, I think teams that are listening really give some consideration to how you can track that. And I would tell you that if you're not an executive in your agency, that you don't believe that you have the authority to make a wide wholesale change on that, you do have the authority to track these type of things within your SWAT team. You do have the, the ability to make that a box that you can check on your after action review. And for those of us, you know, in California that we're dealing with, you know, the AB 481, which Bobby might not be familiar with, but it's the militarization um, of uh, policing, uh, uh, police equipment um, assembly bill that came through that each agency in the state of California is grappling with. That's something that you can include in a portion of your report to be able to get this kind of information out that talks about the steps that you are taking to de-escalate a situation when you had an opportunity to use force and didn't do it. I really think that's a, a great statistic to, to track and it's something I, I wouldn't have thought of. I think it's a great takeaway. Or to take that even farther, how many times as a commander do you get a request from the SWAT team and you don't use them, right? Because they're the inappropriate use. That's not the right tool. 
I know uh, for an investigative unit I was in once, I tracked how many call outs, how many phone calls we got as an investigative unit that we did not respond to. Because all we tracked is what we went. And so the narrative was, you guys just go out on everything, you know, police yeah. yourselves. You're, yep. you're trying to make overtime. You're trying to do this and that. And so I went to the boss and said, hey, let's start tracking all the phone calls we get when we don't go. And it, and it turned out we had three times the amount of call outs we did not respond to. And so I could go to an executive and go, hey, look, we're, we really are being good stewards with our money and our budget here. Here's here's some better training we can do to reduce the phone calls to the investigators. You know, here's so it, it's the same deal internally. And, and we wanted to kind of show that it doesn't really matter where you work. This this impacts everything that we do. And and just to circle back, um, I, I don't want to off get us off track too much, but in especially in California, and I think Bob can probably talk about this nationally as well, you're thinking this is just big agencies, right? You're thinking this is Oakland, LA, Seattle. It's not. It's a it's a lot of small agencies. It's agencies, a couple of I've heard about, I had to Google them because I didn't know where they were. And yeah, maybe that's because I need to be better at my California geography. But more importantly, they're not controversial places. And any individual can have one use of force as controversial and they're going to knock on your door and you're in a pattern or practice argument. And And to circle back on that, Brent mentioned it, um, and you mentioned it with your experience. They're going to, in my experience, anecdotally, talking to California agencies, they're going to accuse you of a pattern of practice of violating people's constitutional rights based upon their gender, their race, something like that. And But then they don't have to prove it because it's a turning work product. And so the only way they have to prove it is if you take them to court. And if you take them to court, um, and, and correct me, anybody, if uh, I'm headed the wrong direction here, you're looking at a two to three year um, court process, spending millions of dollars, and you're going to lose it in the public opinion because they're going to go to the press and they're going to talk about how they're trying to work with you to make your agency better. And you're refusing to not do bias policing. So, so let me just tell you the one time that DOJ uh, had to go to court, they lost, and that was in the the Alamance County Sheriff's. So, so DOJ did a pattern practice investigation. This is U.S. DOJ, uh, Alamance County Sheriff, North Carolina. So, they did a pattern practice investigation. They found a pattern practice of bias policing, and they said to the sheriff, "Hey, we want you to sign this consent decree." And the sheriff said, "No." This is small. This is a small sheriff's office, and no resources. And uh, so the sheriff said no because, and the sheriff could because he's separately elected, right? He doesn't report to a mayor or city council. So the sheriff said no. I'm not going to sign it. So this is the only time. So DOJ went to court with all their massive, you know, all their lawyers, all their experts, everything else. They went to federal court, and the sheriff uh, hired. You know, he didn't have any money. He didn't have any like resources to call on. So he hired a buddy of his who was a former county uh, attorney uh, to represent him. And uh, they, I think they hired one, one expert uh, statistician. And, uh, and they won. They won they, because, I mean, you don't have to, if you're, if you're uh, going to court with DOJ, DOJ has the burden of proof. 
They have to prove a pattern of practice by a preponderance of the evidence. The city doesn't have to do anything. The city could sit there and say nothing and, 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 and win. Um, and that's almost what happened here, but, but they didn't, cause they didn't, they didn't put on a big defense, right? They just, all you got to do is poke holes. It's like any defense attorney in a criminal trial, you know, just poke holes in, in whatever evidence the, the DOJ presents. And the judge just slammed, I was like, it's something like 250 page opinion, just slammed the DOJ. I mean, it's like they had nothing. They had absolutely nothing. It was a bluff. And they thought that they could overwhelm the, the, the county and they lost. And then, um, and so it, it's not, it doesn't take a long time and it wouldn't cost you any more money, certainly a lot less than a monitor would cost. And again, if you lose, if you go to court and lose, the worst thing that can happen to you is the consent decree that the DOJ wants you to sign in the first place. So essentially, even if you lose, you're delaying having to pay all those costs for a year or so. So it's actually, and that, that this is what frustrates me so much because, you know, only little Alamance County was the only one that ever said no to DOJ and all these other big cities that have much more to lose uh, just willingly sign up uh, as soon as they can and get the ball rolling and hire their monitor, et cetera. And that's all political pressure and media pressure. And that's why DOJ does national press conferences. And that's why they slam the department and 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 just just, you know, drag them through the mud is because they have to put that pressure on them to sign the agreement. And DOJ is terrified of going to court. And, and they, they, they know they don't have anything. That's why, they, that's why their findings letter don't, don't only have anecdotal stories and they refuse to show their work because they don't have anything. It's a bluff. Since I'm retired, I'll speak, uh, I'll speak for the two folks that are still working for their communities. But uh, yeah, they, they're, they're bullying politicians. And, you know, people that have to get reelected and uh, if uh, an agency that the public feels uh, is the safeguard for all these horrible things they've heard about in the history of law enforcement says your agency is racist or biased or using force inappropriately. And you're the politician that says, no, that's not true. And you get reelected again. And so that kind of leads to a strategy I wanted to ask you about and. And that is what are some successful tools you've seen agencies use to educate the public on the ramifications of these agreements and or stipulated judgments. And most of this stuff is going to happen behind county council doors or city council doors. It's not really open to the public, but but there are some strategies uh, in educating the public on what these really look like. And you started off with, hey, you need to be able to tell your own story and you need to have accurate data. And when people use the wrong benchmarks, you need to. Uh, be smart enough to tell them why that is. Um, but what are some other things you've seen in your experience at work? One of the challenges with DOJ consent decrees is that there's no possible way to avoid a DOJ investigation. You can be the best department, you can be squeaky clean, and all it takes is one incident. If you look at most of the major consent decrees, they were all based on one high-profile incident. George Floyd in Minneapolis, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, uh, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Michael Brown in Ferguson. There's, if you do, if if your department does anything to catch the DOJ's attention and make national news, you are at risk of a pattern of practice investigation. And DOJ has zero standards on how they go about choosing which agencies to investigate. It's not like you meet at some kind of threshold. It's all 100% political. So 
there's really nothing you can do to avoid an, an invest excuse me an investigation and once they investigate they will find a pattern of practice whether or not you have one or not they'll find a pattern of practice so your only defense really is to have your own be, be familiar enough with your own data and 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 know when they're when they're just making stuff up uh, like in Seattle, we know we knew that they were wrong, and we knew that what they were saying wasn't true about our use of force. But we had a stack of use of force report forms that were handwritten, and and you know we didn't have we it would it would have taken us months to have gone through all that, built a database, hired an expert, you know everything else. And, and so, so if you're not ready, you have to be ready to defend yourself if the time comes where you have to defend yourself. And, and then you also have to have the, the, the political courage to say no. And, and, you know, it, you know, no chief has ever signed a consent decree. It's the mayor who signs the consent decree. So you have to be able to educate your city councils and your mayors on what is actually happening in your department. And you have to make them comfortable that, hey, we don't have the problems that DOJ says we have. And my department has the data to back that up. So you've gotta be proactive in that sense, but there's nothing you can do to prevent DOJ from doing what they're gonna do. One of the trends we're seeing, uh, Bob, you mentioned it actually earlier, and agencies, uh, rather than waiting for these kind of agreements, are going into constitutional policing models where they hire their own monitors. And so they have someone that works for the county council or the city manager's office versus the police agency that independently reviews their use of force investigations uh, and how they're doing their IAs or, or whatever the issue might be and independently reports uh, if we're being good stewards and we're auditing ourselves appropriately. And that kind of sounds like kind of what you started your career doing. And, and I'm seeing that in California where they're like, hey, let's let's not wait for this to come to our shop. Let's kind of let's find somebody that understands what we do, but has that kind of blend like you do with the law and the experience of law enforcement. And let's have them come in and just audit everything that we're doing and make sure we're doing it the right way. How's that looking across the country? I know in California and the West Coast, it seems to be growing. What have you seen across the nation in that? Yeah, I mean, I I think any kind of, of, you know, both sort of civilian oversight in general, but also having some kind of, of, of auditor or, you know, independent, you know, sort of oversight body is, is, is a good thing. Um, and sometimes it can get very tense. Sometimes you can get you know, sort of an activist in those positions and it doesn't sort of go very well. But I think in general, it's good to have as many eyes on what you're doing as possible and, and to provide, to be able to look at your data from various, you know, perspectives and to be able to, you know, push back on things and make departments think more about what they're doing. And it's like, oh, we've always done it this way and, and we haven't done it. And maybe, maybe there's a reason we want to do it a different way. And there's concerns raised about this. So being able to get that sort of constant feedback that's based on, trying to help the department improve as opposed to trying to, you know, tear our department down 
and put it under a consent decree, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I like those kind of, of models. And I think in general, civilian oversight is, is, a, is, a, good, is a good thing. Well, it's kind of ironic because that's how the system is already set up, right? And then we're just not doing it. So we have city council and a city and a mayor and a city manager that, that we're supposed to educate and report to regularly. Yeah. And then yeah. we don't and they don't get involved. And, and historically, I mean, you know, and so now we like create a whole separate model to do something that we already had that we right. can't get people to do. And, and I remember Sid telling me a story about demonstration response back in the, in the eighties. And uh, they were, you know, talking about uses of force then and, and less lethal on crowds and all the same stuff we're talking about today. Right. Cause history repeats itself. And he invited the city council to come out like, Hey, come out or the County council come out watch what happens, see what it's really like. And of course, no one came and, you know, see that it's, it's not always peaceful protesters, right? It's not always, there are people that exercise their rights and we're there to make sure they can, but there's also, you know, criminals and they're doing, doing acts that we need to deal with. So uh, it's very interesting that we've got this model. And, and I think that's probably the model of the future because it kind of adds the structural support to what we already should have been doing with county councils and, and city councils. And that is forcing us to interact and educate the people that we work for on what we do. And then also making sure that we're accountable with the resources that they give us. One thing that, that, that always sort of frustrates me is that, you know, especially when DOJ comes in and does their thing is that, you know, I'm fully supportive of DOJ's goals and objectives, which are, we want to ensure constitutional policing, right? We don't want officers to violate the law or, right. or people's rights. Right. And every sheriff, every police chief, every officer I've ever talked to has said, I mean, nobody says, oh, I just want to go out and, and violate people's rights today and bust some heads and da, 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 da. No, I mean, everybody wants the same thing. So what we're arguing about is is basically they're basically DOJ saying no these 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 departments and these officers really really are bad. I mean they they don't want constitutional policing and they don't know how to achieve it and and they need to take direction from us in order to achieve that objective. And and what frustrates me is that is that you know because we all want the same thing, you know, shouldn't we be working together to find the best way to achieve those goals and objectives. And uh, to do that, I think, is working collaboratively. I mean, if DOJ, I mean, imagine if DOJ came in, whether it's state DOJ or federal DOJ, and said, hey, we've got a bunch of money and we've got a bunch of experts and IT systems and, and all sorts of expertise, technical assistance, and we want to help you improve. We want to help you come up with the best department and best policies, best training programs, and we're going to help you with resources and whatever support you need. No department's ever going to tell them to go away, right? It's like, yeah, that's whether you have a problem or not, they're going to welcome that kind of assistance. And and it, it's this, it's it's if we can move from this adversarial model of, I mean, I don't know who thought you know you could you could reform a police department through 
an adversarial process. That doesn't make any sense to me. You you reform through collaboration. I mean, you got to work with the community. You got to work with elected officials, work with DOJ, work with whoever. But it's got to be a collaborative process if you're going to make any any headway. And and we're going literally going in the opposite direction with an adversarial reform model. Bob, talk to us about what can uh, what can people do to become better statisticians and be more aware of this work and. How can we go like, you know, when you're going to be a SWAT cop, there's there's SWAT schools and there's Cato and there's different things to go to. You want to be a homicide detective. There's ways to go and, and do this stuff. When people are starting out on this journey to to become better statisticians and in interpreting the data associated with with police and use of force and deadly force and stop data and things like that. I mean, it's, it's the world we're living in. So how how does somebody become a little more proficient um, with that? Where do, where do they go for things like this? Yeah, I mean, again, it's 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 the best sources of information are really your your criminal justice, you know, departments at universities and colleges. And I mean, this is their focus, right? Their focus is on criminal justice data. That's their bread and butter. And they're the ones that publish the bulk of you know peer-reviewed journal articles and do the bulk of the research on policing and and you know, jails and courts and prosecutors and the whole system. And and they're a very underutilized resource, I think. Um, and people tend to focus on what the activists think and what the activists say and what the media thinks and what the media says about police and ignore the experts. DOJ completely ignores the experts. They, in their consent decrees, they will say, if you look at both Minneapolis and Louisville findings letter, they will say, oh, we use dozens of experts in policing and statistics and criminal justice and da 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 da, but they will never name a single one of them, right? And they will. There's no way to check, you know, what they did, who they are, what their qualifications are, experience, or or how they did their work, what their methodology was. They're they're really underutilized as, as a business. We work with uh, universities around the country and we share data with them so that they can do research. And we're involved in a number of peer reviewed journal articles. They're just a, a fantastic resource. And the great thing about it is because they're, you know, universities, they're oftentimes willing to work. You know, their payment is getting access to the data because that helps them do their research. And they love to work with police departments. I mean, that's just a dream for them. So establishing those kind of relationships and they, you know, even, you know, they'll help you, they'll help train you on how to, how to, you know, collect and analyze your data and report on it. So that's what I would recommend. I appreciate that. And on, on top of that, if uh, people have additional questions about police strategies and kind of what police strategies does, um, how can they get a hold of you and and uh, see some of the things that you're writing and and um, and talk about how your company might be able to help their agency? Sure. So I'm I'm on LinkedIn and I I spend way too much time on LinkedIn. Uh, I. I I, I just have all these news feeds about, you know, I put in like use of force and consent decrees and stuff. And so stuff pops up every day and I can't resist, you know, posting and talking about it. So I, that's the only social media I do. So I'm on LinkedIn. Our website is policestrategies.com. My email is bob at policestrategies.com. Uh, I'm more than happy to, you know, uh, answer questions, talk about, you know, helping out, whatever you like. I, I, this is, sort of what I do now. Well, I can't uh, thank you enough for what you do. Uh, you know, you 
your impact is bigger than you you know, um, with a, a lot of agencies that are grappling with this and trying to figure out how we can operate within this space and how we can either deal with people who are less than ethical actors, people who have a financial gain out of this, and really even just reasonable people wanting to have this information. You're really helping shape how we think, how we communicate, how we collect data, how we can tell our story better so we can continue to be effective really to serve our communities and to to make people safe. And so I, I want to thank you for the work that you do, because a lot of us read uh, the things you write, and you've been able to give voice to this and really lead us and really kind of a thought leader and helping challenge and develop our own thought process. So thank you for that. And as Marcus and Adam and I, you know, and, and the board at Cato is really trying to shape how um, this isn't just a tactics-based organization that we have critical thinkers who are making their departments and their profession better. Thank you for taking the time on behalf of Cato to really help shape that and figure out what that looks like in our areas where we work. So we really appreciate that. If there's ever anything that um, you're looking for a, a partner, a data partner, a thought partner, or anything at all based in in, uh, in California, we would we would jump at the opportunity to. to um, to work with you and partner up with you on that. So thank you for your time on this. And I'd like to turn it over to Marcus and Adam for any closing thoughts as well. Yeah, I, I just echo, you know, what Brent just said. I mean, this is a very important conversation. This is not something that most cops are fluent in um, by, by any stretch. We're professional police officers. We're not looking at data. We're not looking at politics. We're not trained in this space. And so for, for you to come on and give us kind of a jumping off point where people can start looking at your work. Um, I know PORAC has done some work on this. There's been some rebuttals to some of the stuff that's come out from the RIPA board. You know, you can start there. Take a look at some of these um, letters, white papers, studies. Um, talk to people in this space who kind of know how to get around a little bit. And the next thing you know, you slowly start building an expertise that, you know, most people don't have, even outside the police space. You talk to people who are in city government and this is completely unfamiliar to them and they defer to the people who proclaim to be experts and those people who proclaim to be experts sometimes have an agenda and, you know, sometimes it's pretty thinly veiled. Sometimes it's better camouflaged. So this, I think, gives people the tools to at least kind of make some sense of what they're looking at. Yeah, thanks. Okay. I, I really enjoyed it. It's fun. Bob, I want to say thank you for all the work you've done for law enforcement, for all the articles you write. If you get a chance, please follow Bob on LinkedIn. Checked out his website. You never know who you help because at any given time, one use of force incident can bring federal or state Department of Justice investigation and pattern or practices into your agency. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 